0: This podcast is brought to you by Rode Microphones, providing premium audio products at an accessible price, enabling people from around the world to achieve their creative goals. With mics for studio, video recording, and podcasting, you're bound to find the mic you need. To find out more, visit Rode.com. Hello, and welcome to the Soundworks Collection interview series. My name is Michael Coleman. And for those of you for joining us for the first time, welcome and thank you for tuning in. For those of you that have been listening since the beginning, welcome back and thank you for supporting the video and podcast series that we all know as The Soundworks Collection. I started Soundworks Collection in 2009 with the idea to share stories and work of sound teams from around the world. And now almost seven years later, I'm happy to say, we're not going anywhere. In fact, we're doing great. We're continuing to reach new audiences and gain the support of the audio industry, which is why I thought I'd jump on the mic and welcome our new podcast sponsor, Rode. I often get emails asking what type of gear I use when interviewing our subjects for the videos and the podcast series. And from day one, it's been Rode Microphone. For the video profiles, I use the Rode NTG3. It's been a workhorse on location. And for the podcast series, we've been using the Rode NT3. It's a great condenser microphone that I love because it never goes down, and it sounds fantastic. Today we're gonna chat with the supervising sound editor and sound designer, Richard King, about his recent work on the DC comic movie, Suicide Squad, directed by David Ayers. We're gonna talk about some of these characters, some of these worlds, some of the challenges, some of the fun that you guys had working on this film for Richard, for you, when you found out about this project. What did you think, since you've been in the superhero world, what were you excited about, at least when you first learned about Suicide Squad?
1: well ironically this was a film that my son told me about two or three years ago when they first announced that they were making it and he's a, a big fan of the uh, of the comics uh he's 16 and uh he said dad you got to work on this movie and lo and behold as it got closer uh, i got a call to see if i was interested in talking to david ayer the director and got the job so it was exciting because i'm a big fan of david ayers writing and his directing we love his films and i was kind of intrigued to enter the dc world from a different avenue and explore some of the different characters as well as a couple of familiar characters in a different way and in a different style so it was very exciting and uh we had a lot of fun
0: what was some of the early conversations about tone Textures, where was where's David kind of go? What sound?
1: Well, David's uh ex military, and uh, so he is very keen to get all the weaponry and uh, uh machinery and you know, aircraft and helicopters and all that uh, right, and uh, radio, radio chat, you know, all, all that is very uh, those sounds are very uh, dear to him, and he was actually a sonar man in the uh, in the Navy, and the listening was his job. And he he's very astute at determining what flavor or what kind of sound is needed in a particular area, and had a lot of great ideas about uh, uh, different texture sound, sonic textures, and uh, ideas to try. And he he we started off by trying to get very real and precise with the weapons and all the radio, like, uh, scrambling kind of sounds and um, military radio, military comms were all done accurately with the actual devices that they use.
0: How much direction does he give you when it comes to the characters? There's, there's a handful of characters, each of them have different powers. Is it? Do you have a first pass before you get feedback or is, is he giving you any kind of initial direction of tone?
1: Yeah. I. I, I our, our initial discussions were kind of kind of far-reaching and broad, more overall uh, impressions or ideas than anything specific. He did have specific ideas about some of the enchantress powers and, of course, how the weapons sound. He had, had distinct thoughts on, on that. There's so many sounds in the movie and there's so many different kinds of tones and colors from photoreal to mystical and imaginary that I got a first pass on a lot of most of the film and uh, and then we work, reworked it from there. The movie changed a lot during the course of post-production and you know, the track changed uh as a consequence of that.
0: Yeah. When um, you think of your prior films you worked on have been hero-focused films, especially, obviously, all the, the Dark Knight series, what did you learn from those films that you can reapply in the sense of how you think about the superhero world? You have a very natural sound uh, that's represented, but mm-hmm. is there a different a- a- approach that you have or different rules that you can break?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think this, I think, well, I think Suicide Squad's a very different movie from the uh, the Dark Knight movies suicide squad has much more of a kind of a twisted pop art mm-hmm. sensibility and so there's enough elements of the real world to lock you into the movie and to the situation to the the world they're in but then there's a lot of whimsical elements and and uh, you know over the top stuff that uh, wouldn't really have worked so well in in dark Knight. But Suicide Squad wants to explore a more wacky, crazy, anarchic kind of vibe mm-hmm. as well.
0: I think the great thing in the beginning of the film, there's all the kind of the setups of the characters and like these screens kind of come up with like their stats and kind of like their hobbies or whatever. But uh, in the background, you guys are doing some really interesting kind of sound and antidotes that kind of are hinting at what their superpowers or what who they are as characters. How much of that was realized early on with by the visual aspects or visual effects or is that kind of some of the conversations you guys have at there's certain pockets where you guys can start sprinkling these things in
1: well that was a uh, that was a late addition to the to the uh, to the picture okay uh those cards and and uh when we saw them we we basically tried to get into the spirit of that aesthetic and use sounds that pertain to their particular that character's particular Uh, uh, abilities, and um, and do it with a little bit of humor, so that the movie had this kind of funny, dark, and twisted yet funny uh, counterpoint. And you know, it was really important that sound uh, uh, observed that you know both of those aspects. And
0: right, well, one of them that came up was uh, the character of Deadshot, played by Will Smith. He is a, a you know this very interesting kind of setup story of showing who he was, or where he came from, how he got into jail, or, you know, all this kind of, like, smaller backstory that happens. You know, but but there's a kind of a, a unique approach that you guys did with the guns or with his whole kind of mechanisms. To me, it seemed that it's something that people are familiar with. And, like, how do you guys come up with the sound of his gun, even, per se, or, or his artillery? And how do you guys decide this sounds right?
1: Well, first, we started off using the real guns they were using, which were, uh, you know, an assortment of Glocks and... And we recorded them in environments in which they're used in the film. So we tried to emulate the environment the guns are fired in. Interiors, out on a street, whatever. We've we've experimented with that in the last couple of films to record the guns for the locations. And um, sometimes it works out great, sometimes it doesn't work out so great. This time it worked out really well. We had those real guns that we began with for everybody will Smith especially mm-hmm. and uh, and then we built up from there and um, basically they began as uh, big movie sounding guns but then grew in importance in the in the story and in the just felt like they needed a bigger voice so we we amped them up quite a bit and uh, especially his wrist magnum. He, has, he also has two pistols, two kind of standard-issue Glocks that he that he uses. Uh, the wrist magnums were the ones that um, that had the most special sound combination of lots of things, but basically just a great big gun sound. He used a Colt rifle, uh, assault rifle uh, as well, and that was also um, elaborated upon and enhanced, but for the most part, the guns that the SWAT teams used and uh, the guns that uh, everyone else uses are are more or less standard issue. You know that gun, an AK-47 for the Joker, uh, various Colts and 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 Glocks for the the SWAT teams, the minigun that that uh, that Joker uses at one point are all basically those guns.
0: Yeah, for the Enchantress, there's a really interesting kind of voice processing that you guys that you did what was the evolution to kind of landed on where it, where it did uh
1: well i i had tried uh, pitching her down a little bit early on and that that seemed to help uh we then uh uh sort of late in the game we uh looped m- many of her lines just to get consistency because there was uh there was inconsistency in the recordings because They had recorded a lot of her lines in a big space with fans blowing and water blowing. And so a lot of the dialogue was, um, it was very uneven. So uh, Gary Rizzo did did some experimenting and ultimately came up with that great kind of deep voice that has a little bit of added gravitas. Uh, We wanted to make a clear distinction between... The Enchantress character and the June Moon character, the human that she inhabits. So they really did sound like two people. And yeah, it, it was a couple of months of experimenting, but Gary ultimately came up with something that worked, I think, really, really well.
0: You know, and something that was, I loved hearing was the, the character of Killer Croc. You don't really know what he is. He looks like he's an alligator or some type of this weird hybrid, but really fierce and really growly. What was kind of your guys' interpretation of it?
1: Uh we uh the actor uh who who played him uh, did a, a fantastic voice and and uh, that's all him i think we we only looped uh i believe we only looped a little mm-hmm. little bit of him um he's pitched down a little bit and he's got a uh he's got a uh a couple of other treatments on his voice as well as um growls from a couple of different animals mostly tigers that uh are kind of his raspy breathy growls and and breathing and um i'd say like 75 percent of it's the the actor and then we add a little bit here and there around the edges to 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 flesh it out
0: and then you have characters like el diablo which is just just fire just flames and well were there other elements kind of tucked in there or was it a lot of fire and flame swishes?
1: a lot of it was it was all fire it was it was uh um um all fire maybe maybe a, a, some animal sounds occasionally uh but we did a lot of recording with with lighter fluid and and um uh to get expressive propane uh fire to get uh, expressive um expressive and Mm -hmm. you know uh, uh, fire sounds that had some movement and and, and
0: yeah (laughs) and then Harley Quinn is Harley Quinn
1: Harley Quinn is Harley Quinn Uh, she's yeah she's uh, herself Uh, Slipknot has his you know his various devices and and cam cleats and lines and uh, winches and reels and uh, Boomerang has his Boomerang which is as well as a lot of Australian sounds. We used a didgeridoo for his <laughs> uh his intro card. Mm-hmm. Um as well as a very distinctive Australian bird. And the, the the boomerang was made of um I think a uh I think you call it a bull roarer. It's a it's a Aust- Aboriginal uh communication slash instrument that uh makes a deep a deep whirring sound. Yeah, so everybody had their little palette of sounds. With which they carried around with them, and we kept building as the as the show progressed. And you know, it it, it, as as is the case in many of these sort of summer blockbuster movie type films, that there's so much sound that you end up just going for the the biggest thing you can find that will read subtlety. Subtlety becomes hard to convey, and so everything just became big. And,
0: um, it wasn't on until you got to the, the stage and kind of you're able to manage dynamics, or how did, how well, did it about?
1: I, th- I think it was, I think it was, th- 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 you know, the track evolved. A lot more songs were being used by the end, and they really didn't feel right, played at a uh, kind of a background level. I think it was more, it was a thing we all felt that the movie just had to have this, had to have an energy to it that, uh, to match the match the visuals and and the track needed to have that same kind of crazy anarchic energy. So um, Michael Keller and I, this sound effects mixer, were always devising devising new new ways of getting a sound to read with all the other sounds going on.
0: How much consideration is there when you have kind of a little hint of the flash shows up? Because we haven't really heard the flash that much. There's obviously like he has you know he's shown up on. Other aspects like TV shows in different places, you know what was the discussion of how the flash was going to sound?
1: Well, we, we tried to make uh, the flash is only briefly yes, glimpsed, so. very briefly glimpsed and it's it's in a flashback and it, so it's not quite a not quite a um, not quite a real view of him. It's sort of a, a story that's being relayed. So we didn't feel like we were tasked with coming up with the flash of sound. Mm. This was more of a hint of what the sound could be. You know, there's some electrical arcing because his suit is is got a lot of static electricity on it, and when he moves, there's in the film he doesn't appear to move fast because it's kind of the way the shot is. It's it's suggested that he's moving very fast. So. We needed a sound that kind of represented that, but didn't necessarily just needed to convey the notion of rapid
0: move. You recognize that it's the flash, obviously. Like you hear it, you see him.
1: Yeah, and it really is. It must be a seven-second right, scene very or quick. Something. Yeah, uh, and uh, so it's it really is just a mere suggestion of what you know of what he is and what he can do.
0: Yeah, you know, the enchantress and her brother, the character, and and, and then the army. You have a lot of, not blobs, but you can't really make out what they are. They don't have any face or human form. How did you guys figure out what that was going to sound like?
1: Yeah, D- David referred to those big blobby guys as the EAs, the eyes of the adversary, and uh, because they had many eyes on them. That was a tough one to crack because we were initially trying to make them sound somewhat insect-like or hive-like, uh, never really gelled, never really worked. So we ended up just giving them sort of nonsense voices mm-hmm. uh, you know complicating the design of the sounds for them is that they didn't have any they don't have mouths they don't there's no there's no apparent way they can make a noise so um, we began with this insect idea this hive like idea this notion that they're that they're communicating with one another but they're not particularly intelligent individually. Um, that that idea was maybe too subtle or too it it, it it wasn't it wasn't coming across very well so we ended up going with much more of a familiar movie monster kind of kind of sound but it it works with them as communication the way they ended up behaving and looking and appearing in the film is like humans that have been transformed into something that are just their automatons that Follow orders yeah
0: i was listening to when they start getting hit by like harley quinn's bat by bullets how they're being hand-to-hand combat you start to understand are they strong are they not strong what textually are they made out of and yeah
1: that was the other funny thing they're made out of
0: it, it always looked like coal to right. me yeah, yeah. like
1: they they'd shatter when they get got shot or hit and would make kind of you know these animalistic sounds but there was clearly some communication in those animalistic sounds a guy that uh, sound effects editor on on the film randy torres uh trans wrote a bunch of script having to do with worshiping the enchantress and pleasing her and you know uh, relaying orders and we translated that into various languages and reversed it and we all spoke a bit and then we did some processing on the on the result of that and so it it, it, we wanted to make it clear there was communication happening but very basic communication they're just pretty much just uh following orders and and that's it
0: yeah and also in this film there's a lot of cues music cues that are happening dropping throughout kind of helping the sequence or the connect the setups for some of the characters how much of that were you guys aware of, of where those were going to be? Was that kind of a rolling decision? Or? So,
1: some were 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 placed very early on, mm-hmm. um, months bef- before we mixed. Some were later editions. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no, I don't think there were any any last-minute editions. We, we knew, basically, we knew where music cues were going to be and where score was going to be, mm-hmm. very basically. Yeah. And then um, that didn't really alter the way we, prep the track because a lot of times you want you want to weave some real sounds in even if there is a a cue uh, a, a song uh going on yeah so i would i would say that was that was the idea of the music versus sound effects relationship was something that we really didn't fully tackle until we started mixing
0: yeah and lastly the the joker by jared leto what was the directive from david of the tone of how he was going to sound because there's a lot of really Listen very closely. There's some stuff kind of floating around there that, that kind of cue in his insanity what what's going on in his head. You caught that. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, th- th- w- there's there's generally some sort of electronic, staticky, uh, hummy, disturbing pulse <laughs> going on when he's present. And just his energy is... I always imagined it to be dark and scary and dangerous. And so we... We did all of these high voltage kind of throbs and hums and, and uh, that were kind of undulating in the background of his scenes. Mm-hmm. They're just it's just there, following him around like a cloud. Yeah, um, it's subtle and and you know with score and we had to be careful of any kind of pitched sounds, but definitely there. You know anything having to do with the Joker, we tended to go a little bit broader with the with the sound may make spiking the guns up a little bit his sports car which is kind of a in the film visually a kind of a Lamborghini knockoff. we turned into a Nissan street racer <laughs> with a vacuum shifter mm-hmm. and I had somebody drive it you know flat out so we just kind of amped up the crazy anarchy of that driving scene just had this clear mismatch in in car and and sound
0: yeah how do you describe uh the mindset pre-production or early stages and obviously now now that the film is behind and is done and it's been out in theaters when you look back and where you guys when you initially were thinking about what you wanted to do with the film and what happens what, what you know where the um, stream of production kind of takes you guys is there any way to kind of see any kind of continuity of original thoughts kind of be a- actualized and
1: well now of course it seems obvious mm-hmm. what we what what was appropriate and what we should do which was how we ended up. Back in six months before that, when we started, it was a different movie to all of us working on it, yeah. and uh, we were kind of just cracking it open. Mm-hmm. And so, in hindsight, yeah, it, it's 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 very clear, very obvious what the right sonic approach was. Uh, but it was that was a, a, a route that we had to a very serpentine route we had to travel to get there and achieve it both with the evolution of the cut through post production and just with living with it for a while and screening it for an audit for for small audiences and getting feedback and thinking some more about it and coming up with better ideas yeah it it, it was an interesting evolution i think i learned a lot
0: yeah when you think of you know maybe your intent or, or ideas that you want to introduce whether it's to david or the film or the rest of the team how do you do it in a way that doesn't feel like you're not you're being collaborative you're, you know you might have a really strong idea or vision for something is it in this case it's like the best idea is the one that is usually decided on i mean or is it directive is what david's vision is is where everyone heads how, how do you balance well,
1: Dave david's super collaborative yeah. and he, and he he loves to get loves to get everyone's ideas um I and mean, he's definitely the boss but he wants collaboration he wants everyone's best ideas and if if i was enthusiastic about something i maybe that enthusiasm you know is uh, uh showed yeah. uh, but i i tend to just wait until i'm really believing in something myself before i'll i'll play it for him or conversely if i'm completely stuck and have only if come up with some something that i'm not thrilled with but <laughs> it's all i can think of at the moment i'll play him that if i need feedback and and need you know some kind of direction he was always available we were he was cutting here on the warner brothers lot where i am so he was always available to come over and and listen to listen to sounds and eager to listen to sounds he like i said he likes he likes sound and likes uh make the most of it and make the most of every little moment so the track really it it evolved constantly throughout this Six or eighth month post sound period, and and really in the last six weeks, it really uh, um, really evolved much more as visual effects became finished, and we all had a had had a time had had a chance to live with it and think of alternative approaches. I mean, that's, or, the, that's
0: what I was going to ask you: is how do you protect yourself from you know you, you you've watched this film more than anybody? I mean, you you and the director, how do you get perspective? How, what, what do you have to do besides try to create some separation or some other? Um, is it possible?
1: I've always found that if I if I get to the point where I really like something and it's really working, that doesn't go away. So that can be, and if assuming everyone else is happy with it too, yeah, yeah. then that's that's something that I feel like I can I can sort of stop thinking about, and I do because there's plenty of other issues to approach. But I yeah I feel like the, the one thing I'm that I'm good at is that I'm once I. Subtle, like something and settled upon it, it I, I never, I don't question it anymore. Yeah. If I really do like it. Yeah. And if I, and if it really does work well, it really just became a matter of the, you know, the half a dozen or whatever issues that I couldn't solve to my satisfaction, they got pushed down to the end because all the other problems got solved. And the more time you spend with a problem, there's generally going to be a solution there. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a matter of, just spending enough time with the problem, seeing where it fits in the context of the film and where it and its relative importance in the context of the film, and not stopping your effort in trying to get it perfect. the The big machine that the Enchantress conjures up would be an example of that. Mm-hmm. Something that <clears throat> that uh, kept growing visually because every time i would see it it would have more moving parts and it would be bigger and vaster and extend further up into the sky and that was something that you know began in one very specific way and ended up and went through many variations that radically departed from that initial idea and then in the end sort of came back to that initial idea in a modified form so that happens sometimes too where you'll find something that works, picture keeps changing, so you feel like you need to change the sound, but it doesn't quite work as well, so you end up going back to a modified and altered version, an enhanced version of right. the original idea.
0: I mean second-guessing is, is, you don't know what you're what you're second-guessing, you're second-guessing. So many different things that you could say, what's working, what's not working, usually it's something that's so simple or obvious. So a simple simplification of something that's usually overthought and there's too much too much going on, and you just need a specific things, yeah,
1: overthinking is a is a problem <laughs> definitely and uh it doesn't help mm-hmm. anything, and most of my ideas that happen to me in the middle of the night or driving home from work or whatever really aren't that good <laughs> uh, maybe ten percent are, but the rest sure. are 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 just cold, hard light of day, just don't. Yeah. so yeah. it's a lot of experimenting and a lot of just sitting listening to sounds and trying this and trying that and trying this combination of things and you know simpler is always better too I find that <clears throat> the more sounds I pile onto something trying to make it work it, that's usually a sign that my initial idea wasn't right and you know finding the right two or three whatever number it is of, of sounds that That really work is is a lot more effective than having a a wall of sound. That machine would be an example of that, Mm -hmm. where it's it's also, whenever we see it, there's also big music, and uh, anything washy or anything uh, roary just doesn't
0: doesn't translate doesn't translate doesn't
1: play doesn't sound impressive. It's got to have a bit of that because the thing's huge, but it needs to have. Specific sounds that are uh, read very uh, clearly through through music. <clears throat> One of those sounds was a tiger tank that that uh, David wanted to use because of ex- his experience on on Fury. He said these these things sound evil,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> and that was his word. So we used a bit of that. We used, I mean, th- there's a lot of a lot of different components in there, uh, but what's ended up has become much more concise and. Gear-like, metallic, clackety, but very fast.
0: What we were talking about before, we went, there's a lot of characters, there's a lot of different scenes, there's a lot of stuff going on that's really pulling the audience through, through the narrative of the story. At what point do you guys look up and realize, oh my gosh, we just, there's so much work that went into this film. When do you, is it not until you do screenings and playbacks or get some type of third-party perspective that you start to feel like, oh, this is working. This is like when, how do you qualify it
1: how do we how do we de- how do we determine for ourselves whether it's working or not yeah i think it's just uh i i think it's just a feel thing and you yeah. trust your judgment and then you yeah you want other people to see it so they can weigh in but i have found that audiences tend to accept the sounds they're hearing as what it is what it is yeah, and right. and they're not questioning the sound so if something fell a little flat for them, maybe that was the sound's fault, and that's that's where we knew we might have something that we needed to address. But otherwise, it was it was a it was a matter of just living with it and watching it. And after a week of watching something the way it was, just thinking, no, you know, that's not that's just not good enough. Or, yeah. That's not not as cool as it could be. And thankfully, we had a lot of time before things got too crazy to do. A lot of experimenting and recording and a lot of trial and error.
0: And at a certain point, the film's coming out and everyone has to just put it into stone.
1: Yeah, and I think that's good because it, yeah. knowing that there's an end, it gives you a little bit of a psychological boost to know that you, we'll know, you can't prevaricate about this forever. and yeah. there, there has to be decisions made and <laughs> you've got to just you know you make the instinct, call. Yeah. Is right. this good or not? I don't think that was good for everybody <clears throat> to have that, uh, the star making decision and, you know, etching some stuff in stone.
0: That's awesome. Well, Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about Suicide Squad. I love to hear people's reaction of watching the films. People pick up so many different things. And in this film, there's so much to pick up. I feel like the things I got the first time watching it, I'm sure going back a second time, you're going to hear a whole another set of sounds and the layers and time and all the stuff you guys put into the track. So thank you for, uh, for talking.
1: Thank you, Michael. I enjoyed it
0: thanks for tuning in and listening to my chat with richard king about his work on suicide squad you can hear more conversations with sound designers composers and directors on the soundworks collection podcast on itunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com thanks again to our sponsor Rode microphones for sponsoring this podcast series providing premium audio products at an accessible price enabling people from around the world to achieve their creative goals with mics for studio video recording and podcasting you're bound to find the mic you need to find out more Visit road.com.